Welcome to Disney's Four Scores. I'm your host, John Burlingame. This podcast series brings together the most accomplished film and television composers working today and reveals the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. Today, we're talking with Emmy and Grammy-winning composer Mark Isham and musician, songwriter, and producer Isabella Summers, best known for her work with the band Florence and the Machine. Mark and Isabella collaborated on the music for the timely dramatic series Little Fires Everywhere, streaming exclusively on Hulu. We will also talk with Mark about his work on the original film Togo for Disney+. Welcome to the both of you. Uh, Mark, from your studio in Los Angeles, and, and Isabella, I presume, from somewhere in England? I'm in London, yes. Currently okay. in London. <laughs> if I could start with you, Isa, I understand this is, this is your first foray into scoring for TV or film. Yes. I think it was something that I thought, you know, you watch the, uh, the best film score documentary at Christmas time and you go like, oh my God, I love that. Oh my God, I want to do that. Haven't I been making music like that this whole time? And then it was kind of a combination of wanting to put um, my music to picture and having done so in little pieces here and there and then being presented with an opportunity of doing it for real on Little Fires Everywhere with Mark and then going like, okay, I don't want to do anything else ever again now. <laughs> this is it. I found, I've come home. <laughs> so, so, so Mark, how about you? How did you become involved with Little Fires Everywhere? Uh, Don Solaire, who is the president of music at ABC Productions, she called me up and said, look, I've got this fabulous novel being adapted by great writers and showrunners. And Mary Ramos, who I knew, is the music supervisor. She has this fantastic idea of Isabella Summers, the machine from Florence and the Machine, scoring this piece. They need to team her with somebody who has some experience, and they've all agreed it should be you. So would you please do this? And I said, what a fantastic thing. Yes, I'd be delighted. <laughs> so talk about the collaboration, if you will. I, I know seeing two names as composer for a film and TV project very often leads to the inevitable questions of who did what. And so can the two of you talk about how you actually collaborated on this? Well, it was a sort of like, hey, how you doing? Complete different worlds. Shall we get together? And, you know, do you want to kind of like truly collaborate? And I, you know, I'm used to doing that from a songwriting perspective. So I was like, absolutely. Where do I need to go? And it was like, well, actually, Calabasas. <laughs> it was like, okay, that's my new commute then for a second. And, um, you know, for, before Christmas, when we started doing it, we kind of sat down together at first at Mark's house in his wonderful studio. And he said that he would like it to be a true collaboration. And I was like, I would be honored. So um, there sets the scene. You literally were in the same room. I know a lot of contemporary collaborators do so remotely, but it sounds like you needed to be in the same room, Mark. Yeah, we did. You know, a lot of the time, if two, two people write a, a project, somebody will take half, you'll take the romance, I'll take the action, you know, things like that. And I just said, that's not going to be the way to do this. What you really want is, is like a great band where it's greater than the sum of its parts, <laughs> you know. 
And so it meant just actually being in the room together. And Isa was was very accommodating with her commuting. <laughs> and she she came out here. Rainy old England, nah. I'll come to Calabasas. <laughs> so how did you start? You know, I'm often fascinated by the process of how you decide what sound or musical approach a drama is going to require. And, and did somebody come up with a riff or something? Uh, how did that go? Uh, Isa, what about your point of view here? We sat together and broke down the story. You know, we'd both read the script. Obviously, it's called Little Fires Everywhere. And so it, it kind of felt like we, we were going to have some fun here. So, you know, <laughs> straight away, you go to Mark's studio and he has all the first moves ever made and, like, the virus made by the guy who actually made you know the whole virus keyboards <laughs> and I was like great so we'll use all of this and Mark said absolutely not <laughs> we're gonna do we're gonna do MIDI and we're gonna write it and we you know we were very lucky to know that we were going to be able to record some live instruments which is definitely my background I know it's also Mark's <laughs> certain clues in the, in the story is he the character plays uh, violin, so that we knew. In fact, one of the first things we had to do was prep some on-camera work for Izzy because she's on camera playing violin. So we had to do okay, some. Okay, so that. they were actually still in production then when you were starting the score. Yes, we were prepping on-camera stuff for like episodes five and seven and later stuff when we were still looking at episode one and trying to decide how to really dive into this thing. The producers felt it should be an organic score. They didn't want anything electronic. And I think the more we read it and looked at it, we felt as fun as the electronics are, believe me, I, I like nothing more than going back there and, and twiddling all those knobs. But um, <laughs> this story has a tremendous amount of heart in it, from agony to ecstasy. It runs the gamut here. Strings, I think, were our first key. And then I think we ran across the burning piano. Wasn't that it? it yeah, li literally little fires everywhere. And Mark has a plug-in that makes the sound of an actual piano that's been set on fire. <laughs> Leave, so it <laughs> Leave it to Aisham. Leave it to Aisham. I know, I, call, I called us Iz and the Fizz from the beginning because I was like, Mark's got the Fizz. And, um, and then drums. I yeah. was like, well, you know, I come from a very big, epic drum background. And I said from the beginning, can we have a live drummer? And Mark said, probably not. I said, come on. <laughs> and then we got our way. Yes. <laughs> well, well, I, I want to pursue that because one of the things that I think makes this score stand out and maybe even a step forward in terms of the art of film scoring is the Ooh. fact that this sounds so contemporary to me and the drums and percussion is really much more prominent than I expected. And I wondered if you had a, a fight on your hands to get that done. It's a great sounding score. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Issa makes light of it, but it was our one point of friendly discontention. I mean... I, I have found over the years doing television that you sort of have to pick your battles in terms of the finances and what you can get away with. And quite frankly, drum sampling has reached a great state in our present technology. And so my 
first response always is, well, drums will be the last thing that we'll ever spend our hard-earned budgets on. Strings will be the first. And literally, it, it got to be the running joke between the two of us. <laughs> you know, as it would say, and then, and then the real drums, right? <laughs> she said, all right, if we can't afford the player, I'll come in and play them. Just rent me a kit. I'll come in. I'll bash it. I literally it. was like, like, I'll do it. I'll do it. We just need real, the real sound. <laughs> By the time we got to really putting some of this stuff down... She was right. She was 100% right. And it was really, it's drums and strings. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Fortunately, though, also, one of the great drummers was not on the road, living at home here in L.A. and available. So we had the fantastic Vinnie Caliuta is playing drums. And that, of course, just brings it to the highest possible level. I was going to say he was the only person that would replace me doing the drums. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, okay, Benny can do it. How did you write it and then have him interpret it? And was he in his studio doing it remotely from where you were? Well, look, Isa is a, a supreme drum programmer and designer and writer. <laughs> so a lot of it, she would design the first pass on drums. Or we would sit together and she would say, you know, no, that's too jazzy. Do and then something that, that I never knew was that you could actually write out drum parts. How is that a thing that you can actually turn it into a, a score, like written down? Because I come from a world where you just bang the walls and then like <laughs> you add a tom on top of it and then you just like shake something. It can be written. That is the magic. And that's amazing. And so the, the other fabulous thing is that you did have real strings here, you can yeah. tell, and that adds so much, I think, in terms of humanity and just enriching the overall audiovisual experience. Was that a, a, a given from day one? Dawn and I go way back, and she knows that just certain things that will make me happy, and she wants me to be happy. <laughs> and <laughs> and so from, from the beginning, there was a budget that she said, you know, you'll have to work with me on it. And we did. We had to do um, three, three and a half episodes per session. We had to have it together. Wow. Because we had to burn through a lot of music in a very short time. But, you know, Los Angeles, best string players in the world, best drummer in the world. It all went very, very smoothly. And I think we got some really great performances. So in terms of the, the score itself, you know, it seems like so much of the drama centers on mothers and daughters and the sometimes fraught relationships between them. Was there a way to musicalize that idea? Well, this project had an interesting startup um, beyond the fact that it was a true collaboration and that Iz and I had to take some time just to find our own way of communicating to each other. And that, in fact, went quite quickly and we were creating wonderful things within the first 12 hours you know of sitting down together what wasn't quite as wonderful and as smooth was getting the ideas from the producers as to what they felt answered your exact question what is the musical vocabulary that that talks about mothers and daughters and this very complex very rich relationship so it was tough because this particular project fell victim to this process which a lot of filmmakers run into is that first time somebody puts music to a scene 
and that scene starts to work, that music becomes indelibly ingrained in their psyche as the answer to all their problems. You're talking now about the temporary tracks that they may have included. Exactly right. We spent a little too much time in this problematic world. And I gotta say, Mary and Dawn finally came to our aid and just said, look, we need to remove you guys from this constant comparison to these temporary tracks. And so the four of us sat down and we just looked at the exact emotion of this thing and went through everything that Iz and I had written. And we respotted the whole thing on our own without the producers, without the showrunner, without the picture editor. And we presented to them an entire score of the pilot completely from our own point of view. And we won them over. But to be honest with you, I've been doing this a long time. This is the first time I've ever had to really do that, where we had to sort of take ourselves away and out of the influence of the filmmakers and come back with a completely fleshed out concept of what are these emotions? What is the musical representation of these emotions? But when we did do this, and we sat and looked at the entire episode with very specifically hand-picked themes that we had developed, it came together, and that set the tone for the entire show. Okay, so then having won that battle, were you under additional time pressure now to sort of get it all done in the proper time frame? Is you want to take that? I might get this my timeline wrong here but it felt like we had four episode four kind of coming in and that was where we really unlocked like all the fire and the drama and the and of these ladies and the passion and the drums and the strings and the harps and the swirly these women entering each other's houses and lives we already had some of that drama ready to go so it was quite difficult going back and working on one which was the setting of the scene and the teenagers and what their relationships were going to be for me having never done this before it was amazing to sit in with mary and dawn and mark and like approach it from a like what is this and who are these people what's their identity and how's this going to roll out but i feel like once we did have episode one and that hang essentially the four of us together, the rest of it sort of like slotted into place pretty well, I'd say. Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Mark Isham and Isabella Summers' score for Little Fires Everywhere, streaming exclusively on Hulu, and Mark Isham's score for the Disney Plus original movie Togo. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Experience the magic behind the music you love whenever you want. Watch Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu and Togo on Disney Plus and listen to the soundtracks wherever music is enjoyed. So what about the key focal points of the drama, the key women. Uh, Elena, played by Reese Witherspoon, and Mia, played by Kerry Washington. Did they have to have their own musical identities in any way? Well, they very much did. And in fact, they would have identities for certain aspects of their personality. I, I always find it never quite as effective to have Elena's theme or Mia's theme. What you want is as you pointed out, the mother-daughter theme, the, the betrayal of the mother-daughter theme. You want the invasion of privacy theme because Mia will invade Reese's 
privacy and Reese will invade Mia's privacy. And then if you can connect those two, the music becomes an even stronger vehicle for storytelling. And I think when we nailed about two or three or four of those aspects of it, and as Isa pointed out, it seemed to come together in episode four. So then we could move forward from four and we could move backward from four. And that, of course, is the luxury of doing a limited series. You, <laughs> one hasn't aired yet, <laughs> so you can still go back <laughs> and, and, it, and improve. If this were regular television, you know, one would have been on the air already <laughs> and, right. and you'd be out of luck. But uh, <laughs> we could go back and we could tweak each episode, you know, as we learned things. So then there is a kind of architecture to the score of all eight episodes, a kind of arc? I would say so, yeah. Absolutely. If you got your diagramming, John, and your, and your <laughs> <laughs> storytelling uh, musicologist <laughs> hat, you, you could make, I think, a pretty uh, interesting connection of thematic and emotional dots on this show. I have to ask you, there's a certain sense of humor to this series, at least in the storytelling. As serious as we take Mia and her life choices, we also have Elena, who can be almost ridiculous in, in her sort of lifestyle. Did you yeah. have to capture that? I think this is where Mark's genius came in. This was my kind of film school, as it were, um, to understand how we were going to do that. And Mark, who's 120 movies deep, um, <laughs> showing me how we were going to inform the viewer through the music. One of the things that Mary Ramos was really um, tremendous at is she developed playlists for each character. What really? They, what they would be listening to, which really helped us. It, it's usually a device for showrunners and, and to help pick songs that are going to be on the radio or in the headphones or play as a montage sometimes. And strangely enough... We toyed with trying to set the Elena you first meet, the perky Elena. <laughs> uh, we, we toyed with trying to score that. It ended up being much more effective just to give her a song. It's just something. In, it's, it's like her, her next handbag. In fact, the handbag, I'm sure, was more important. <laughs> so, and so to give her sort of a, a lighthearted 80s song, here she is, and let this music sort of help define who she is, really was much better than anything we could have done. And believe me, we tried. <laughs> so I, I'm so glad that you brought up the song business, because this, again, is another interesting and important aspect of the music of Little Fires Everywhere. Talk about your role as producers of covers here. The composers of the score are generally one thing and the music supervision is very often something else. This seems to be different. I felt like it was a, a big collaboration all the way through actually with us and Mary. I had lots of fun drives to Calabasas listening to songs from the 90s. Between Mary and I, she'd be like, what about Chumbawamba? And then we'd be like, what about Slashing Pumpkins? And then can we do Nirvana? And like, no doubt. And the list of covers were just so fun to choose from. And Mark and Mary felt like it would be very important to the score that the covers fit in with the sound that we were creating. Let's just start with the plain fact that here we have one of the, the great record producer, writer, developers <laughs> of, of the last <laughs> 10 or 15 years of Western pop culture here as, as a part of the team. Let's 
let's put her to work, for God's sake. <laughs> let's get some of this expertise and some of this brilliance that we've seen and heard. You know, I think that was Mary's selfish wish from the very beginning, because Mary is the top music supervisor, and she wanted to get a real creative, not only do you just pick great songs, but work with people who could really deliver original versions of covers. I mean, it's a dream come true for her, It's and it became a dream come true for us, and the show just benefited tremendously because they could have that song they love, but it would be specifically designed for the scenes. Yeah, sort of tailored to the show itself. Did you guys work on the Ingrid Michaelson song? We did. Of course. Ooh, tell me about that. Yeah. Um, Which, by the way, comes at the very end of Part 8. Yes. Um, yes. Ingrid put down her piano and her vocal and then sent it over. And this became a real film scoring job because you have a poem being read by Izzy overlaid with a song. And you, so you have these things that are supposed to be perfectly synced so that no one steps on anybody else's toes. We sat for a long time just taking Ingrid's track and cutting it up and spacing it out and trying to figure out where the lyrics would go, um, only to have the showrunner say, the, the poem needs more space, the song needs more space. Um, so what we did was we moved all the lyrics to an end credits and then tightened it back to Ingrid's original form. But we took what we had developed as the backing track for this long, long scene and turned that into an instrumental score. So you have basically a four minute intro <laughs> to the song from a musical perspective, but from a storytelling perspective, you're scoring the resolution to eight episodes and then handing it off to the song at the end. Yeah, I think it works spectacularly. Everything I ever knew came from you Everything I wanna be that's in me comes from me Is that you is that I'm listening to is that you playing keyboards most of the time Guilty <laughs> <laughs> That was that was part of the excitement of listening to me Oh good thank you I think sometimes we lay it up three or four pianos but yeah that's me Going through the score. <laughs> I, I think it's a perfect actual mix of me and Aish is in the fizz. We literally split it exactly down the middle. I would, go, <laughs> I'd start at the very top of the keyboard at the highest, like Alfred Hitchcock, like octave. <laughs> and I'd be like, this is it. I'm scoring TV now. We gotta make it sound like psycho. And then Mark would. <laughs> Move the hands down the keys. 
but it's very not trendy to like make the strings sound that high up. So like these were learning curves of meeting in the middle. But all the complexities of making all the beautiful strings weaving in and out and adding the extra things going over and over and w- would be uh, Mark's genius. You know, there is a substantial racial component to this story. And given the current climate in America, I wonder if the two of you could talk about that. And if you think that this kind of storytelling can somehow add to the national conversation about race. Mark, you want to take that? Well, I think this story is very, very relevant. Weirdly so. You have generally a white class that considers itself sort of insulated and, and... and uninvolved, and you have uh, a black woman who is extraordinarily talented but has put herself in a sort of an at-risk situation in her life, and and yet both have very strong, well-intentioned goals, and yet both seem to get slightly twisted along their, their path. That's this story, but it's a in- very interesting framework to just show this structure that has been even more revealed to us in the past weeks. So, Isa, do you want to do more of this? Maybe you even have some already on your plate. Well, Mark and I have got a show. We've got a show. When is this happening? (laughs) Aish. (laughs) Well, we, we signed up for a new Netflix show and then the pandemic hit. Apparently, this is genuine proof that the two of you got along fine. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. I'm so ready for Calabasas. Take me back. (laughs) (laughs) So, Mark, I I have to also ask you about a recent project of yours that is airing on another one of these services, Disney+, Plus, which is Togo. A movie movie about a, a heroic sled dog in 1925. As a dog owner myself, I found it incredibly moving, and I'm fairly certain that your score had a great deal to do with it. Can you talk just a little bit about scoring Togo, what it required musically? Well, that was was a labor of love. I I own one Siberian, and my son owns another, and the, the Siberian breed of animal has become very near and dear to me. So the story of it, probably the, the most famous Siberian of all, is a great story. And Erickson Core, the director, did a really magnificent job. The, the look of this film is just breathtakingly beautiful. And he got great canine performances. And, <laughs> and, William, <laughs> and, and William Defoe. And William Defoe's not bad either. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It, it harkened back, John, and, and you probably even remember this, my very first film, Never Cry Wolf. It really harkened back to those days where you're not just scoring, you're not putting emotions into the dog's eyes. You're also scoring this beauteous scenery and, and nature at its, at its most gorgeous and its most threatening. Right. And the emotions that come. It's a very similar yeah. film, but a chance to to do it in a new language that I'd never quite worked in before. It's all orchestral. I was to... lucky enough to go to one of the <laughs> string sessions on the stage, and it was an introduction into what Mark Isham does right before we even actually started writing right. together. Yeah. And it was, I think everyone was crying. It was beautiful. So, yeah. I believe that. I spent most of the movie crying myself. (laughs) I'll just ask one other question about Togo, which is there's a certain folk element 
uh, yeah. present, which required, I suspect, a pretty good fiddler or two. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some of the finer uh, players of, of the Los Angeles area. And it's, and it's spread across. There's a violin, a viola, and a cello. Different solos at different times. I think there's about three or four different people that end up having to split the job. But they all did great, great. Charlie Bishrat was the most folky, and he's a wonderful, wonderful violinist that not only is a su- superb classical musician, but plays a lot of jazz and a lot of folk music. And so he was, he's great. So did these two projects actually kind of overlap a little? Is that what you're saying? I was just scoring Togo and finishing it up as uh, Iza and I met, and we're getting started. So finally, what can we expect from you in the months to come? Yeah, I'm making my own record which, you know, has been sort of complicated during lockdown, although I have managed to get a couple of things done. But yes, that is what I'm planning on releasing this year, my own album. And then Mark and I have got a show. I, want to, I would love to score a movie, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just finished the first orchestral film that I've scored entirely from my house. We recorded an orchestra in Budapest, and monitored from here, and then my, my mixer streamed his feed from his mixing console into my mixing console. I never took my slippers off the whole, for the <laughs> oh whole thing. Oh my God, that is the future right there. <laughs> it really is. The, yeah. I mean, the, te- the technology is extraordinary now. It, it was quite something. And I'm about halfway through scoring another, uh, a very interesting film, actually, and talk about Timely. It is the story of Fred Hampton, who was the young chairman of the Black Panther Party in Chicago, who was assassinated by the FBI. And when, when would that have been set? That is in the 70s. So again, a story worth, worth sharing so that we can understand, you know, as a culture, as a country, we can understand how we've ended up here. I can't thank the two of you enough for spending some time with us today. This has been not only entertaining, but um, (laughs) at times wildly so. (laughs) So thank you to Mark Isham and Isabella Summers. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Four Scores. Please subscribe and make sure to share this episode with your music-loving friends. It'd also be great if you can rate it because that really helps others find the series. See you next time.